podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca, we talk about Cricket South Africa's social justice and nation-building hearings, which is their attempt to let their past players tell their stories about racist treatment that they've received in the game. So I got on a journalist who was also once a player. My name is Nungani Zama. I'm a freelance sports broadcaster and journalist based in South Africa. Just a short note on this episode, we recorded it just before the Mark Boucher allegations come out. So we talk about Mark Boucher a little bit at the end because we knew he was eventually going to say something about what had gone on. But it's obviously not as up to date as it should be. As I think we recorded this on Saturday and Mark Boucher came out on Monday to talk about it. So if it seems a little bit out of date, I apologize. It was not out of date. It was cutting edge when we made it. We chat about stereotypes, opportunity, old boys, quotas, rugby, and what it's like to be chosen for your team only to field from third man to third man. Can you now explain to me what the social justice and nation-building hearings are? It doesn't sound like it's got anything to do with cricket. It sounds like something that a politician came up with and no one said, do you know what, that's not a good title. Yeah, look, the SJN hearings, which uh, we've all coined for ease of communication, <laughs> I suppose, in a sense, you could say they were the brainchild of a, a politician, but it's, it's in the light of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, of last year and uh, a question that uh, Nunging Hidi was asked in a press conference. And upon answering that, there was a wave of criticism from former players saying that uh, cricketers shouldn't wade into political issues. And then on the other side, there was a wave of support for him saying the fact that we don't talk about these things is half the problem. And there's actually a lot of hurt in South African cricket that's just never been unpacked. And um, on that basis, and a few administrative issues within Cricket South Africa at the time, the suggestion for the social justice and nation building hearings was uh, hatched by a board member who was head of transformation, Dr. Eugenia. And she heralded this. She said there was a, something that needed to be done about this, that no African child should ever suffer in what is supposed to be a workspace or a play space. And anybody who's had historical hurt, harm, prejudice, and feels strongly enough about it to bring it forward to a public platform should be able to. And in fact, went as far as saying that there would be a kitty for those who had been prejudiced against and perhaps didn't advance as far as their talents in their minds should have, could be compensated retrospectively, which obviously is from a cricket perspective opens up uh, a lot of cracks because, um, you know, cricket is uh, not easily measurable at the best of times. And, and to now look back on a career and say that I should have played for South Africa, but because of the coach at the regional level didn't allow me progress. You know, I don't know how I prove that. Never mind how you then say how much compensation I am relied for. But on that basis, a lot of former South African cricketers of colour have come forward um, during the initial stage of the hearing. And quite frankly, there were some sensational revelations about the inner workings of some national dressing rooms, things that were said, labels that were given to certain players, just the language used and, and, and the level of access that people had. And obviously on that basis, there's been a strong uh, reaction. Let's go back to what you said about Ngidi. So Ngidi said the, the softest possible political terms that anyone has ever said. It was incredible that it even upsets old conservative white players. It was so soft what he said. 
you and I both know, we both have probably followed former South African players on Twitter and Facebook and met them in real life. And they say things all the time that you and I probably go, oh, and they repost things on Facebook from the very worst websites ever. And they get involved with these sorts of things. That also, I think this is worth saying because I think it all plays back. It's really a boys club. They all go to the same schools. In some cases, like one or two schools. And I, you know, I think you might've gone to one of their schools as well. So you, you're part of the problem, obviously here. But they all go to the same schools. They all have this incredible group think around them. And so it really did take a hearing like this for everyone to go, whoa, the way we are talking about people who are not one of us, and generally that's what we're talking about here, the othering of, of certain groups, is it's always been a problem in South African cricket from 92, forget before 92 because there were other problems, but from 92 onwards, this has always been a pretty clear problem the minute you go on social media and follow any of these guys. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Jared. I think, like you say, I've, I've been at, one of these schools, I've played cricket in South Africa at a representative level from schoolboy to club to amateur to even a little bit of what was described as first class at the time. So I'm, I'm very familiar with these spaces. I'm very familiar with the othering that we speak of. And I, I think it's one thing to call them blind spots at the time because it's a competitive environment and you know, you yourself are, are, are trying to get ahead and make a living out of the game. But, you know, in hindsight, if, if I call you out and say that, you know, the things that you called me the last time I saw you mean a certain way and, and your first reaction is to rubbish those claims, that's the bigger problem. And I think the reaction to Lungigidi's answer in a press conference was exactly that knee-jerk response, which doesn't help to solve or even begin to solve the problem. And the type of player that stood up and shouted from the rooftops the fact that Lungengidi is wading into Black Lives Matter discussions, but he doesn't say anything about farmers. And Lungengidi is a child who's gone to probably the most prestigious school in the country. You know, it gets lost in the narrative because unfortunately our first standing point in South Africa so often is to defend our corner and not understand the person trying to explain certain things that, that you've done that has impacted their corner. You know, your first point is, is to defend. I think maybe if you, you widen the metaphor, we're great at saving test matches because we just put up this brick wall and it's, and that's that, you know, and there's nothing, nothing comes in. And unfortunately, that's great for test match cricket sometimes, but um, in these um, changing dynamics of social issues, you, you can't be so rigid. You can't be so absolutely adamant that your way is the only way and, and you're not willing to listen and compromise and have conversations about these things to make sure that the next generation of South African cricketer at whatever level feels part of the conversation, feels part of the team. And I think, you know, that, that historical hurt, when you start listening to these testimonies and it's such a common thread, particularly at the highest level of othering and very, not even subtle othering at that, you know, some of it has been so blatant that you look at it in its totality and you go, well, you know, this wasn't a one-soft, this wasn't a coincidence. This is a, a general theme that's happened for the last 20, 25 years, and something does need to change. When they say, oh, you can't bring politics into this, there is blatant politics within South African cricket to begin with because of the people who found it and the people who run it and, you know, that sort of conservative, right-wing, posh school vibe that comes through the game. That is just part of South African cricket. You and I have both come across that a million... You're born into it, you know, but I've come across it a million times. But also, when we talk about the politics... 
There is a specific reason why young black African batters have not come through the game. And a lot of that comes through this thinking of othering. And if you're a good young African athlete, quite often you're pushed into bowling, even if you could bat a little bit. I mean, I always look at Rabada's technique and I'll be like, are we sure he couldn't bat? I know he doesn't make any runs now, but geez, he's got a good technique for a tail ender, right? You and I both know these stories. And I've talked to South African coaches who say things with a straight face. And they'll say, you've got to understand that, you know, the black batters, they just don't have the temperament to bat long innings. And it's just like, so what happened with Viv Richards and Mark Butcher and Andrew Simons, all these guys from other countries who managed to be black and play very long innings and incredible innings in their time? So it's not just a political thing. It actually legitimately affects the team on the field, doesn't it? I think the language that you use from an early age conditions youngsters on both sides. So if, if, if you understand that a Jared Kimber is only good for third man to third man, and he's told that, and you're told that as, as the captain or, or the dominant force in the team. That's something that's imprinted in you to any Jared Kimber that you come across. Your first port of call is that he's going to plug a gap and he's just going to make up the numbers. And if in a crisis, we need him to hold up an end, you know, that's all we can hope for really. But, you know, historically, this game is not something that Kimbers have played. So therefore, we can't expect much. But unfortunately, the political climate says that we have to accommodate him somehow. So this is the best way to do it. And when you start off on that point, it's very difficult, firstly, for a Kimber to, to break away from that and get an equal opportunity to get a crack at, at a skill that he's probably actually got. He's got blessed, he's been blessed with the talent. And then more than that, when he fails, it reinforces the stereotype that actually this is what he does. And unfortunately, that's what's happened in South Africa. People have been labeled, particularly from a cricketing context. They are bowlers, they are batters, and um, often they're all-rounders, but the all-rounders generally are of, of one color. And if there's an outlier there somewhere, you're very lucky, but ultimately you should expect them to fail. And if, if your coaches are, are pretty much one-dimensional for much of the elite coaching, that's not something that you're going to change. It's not a culture you're going to change very easily. And that's why we have yeah, the problem that we have. Selection in cricket is tough enough to begin with. I mean, you talked about it before. You maybe got one guy who grows up on, on the high veld who's particularly good at certain kind of pitches and another guy who grew up in, in PE and is good on slower pitches. So that is a normal problem with cricket that we're all aware of. You make that harder by throwing in the quota system. The quota system fundamentally will never fix the problem because the problem has to be fixed with 12-year-olds, not with 22-year-olds. But at the same time, you also want the 12-year-olds to be looking in the team and seeing people who look like them. So you can understand why the quota system is there. I think from the outside, people who, who maybe haven't followed South African cricket quite as much as you and I have, I think from the outside, we people kind of look at it and go, oh, it's, they've got to get this kind of player in and this kind of player in and this kind of player in. But that quota system goes all the way through the system. And if you're not actually growing the best players, so if you're saying to some young kid, well, look, we're, you're in this side because we have to tick a box. So you're going to feel from third band to third band and bat at number nine and not bowl. You're actually causing huge problems later on when you're trying to fix it at the international level anyway, aren't you? Yeah, look, I, I don't even have to speak hypothetically. I've, uh, <laughs> I've been part of, of cricket sides that pick you and don't play you or don't use you. And you're betting nine and you're supposedly one of the bowling options and you're playing a three-day match and the first new ball comes and 
gets old and the spinners come on and the first change bowlers come back for their second spells and the new ball bowlers come back for their second spells and the ball keeps on being passed over you and you do nothing for three days but you, you picked. In fact, I've been part of provincial teams that literally picked a black squad first and then their white squad. And I mean, it got to the point where you had a black bus and a white bus and you sort out the five black players that you need in the team. And then you pick the rest of your team around that five that you have to pick. And, you know, unfortunately, when you start on that point, it's just such a bad place to start as a team because already it's us and them. And then you somehow have to go to the field and, you know, be united and try and win matches and, and, and play against teams that you can see are far more ahead of you in, in terms of transformed, not just in their makeup, but in their thinking. Whereas, you know, you don't really know half the guys on your team because you've always been kept apart and you've always been picked apart. And even the way that you're used and spoken to, the language is different. That happens in more South African dressing rooms and team rooms than people would, would care to admit. And some of that has started to come out in the SJA hearings, but not enough. And then the little that has come out, the reaction has been of such denial and that you're not surprised that more people haven't come to the fore. And just on the selection, I remember there's so many confusing parts to cricket selection. So I remember when Tammy Kelly was being pushed as the next South African wicketkeeper, and it must have been when Boucher had got injured and A.B. de Villiers came into the team ahead of him, and Makaya Antini basically came out and said, that's a racially motivated decision. But then you look at the numbers, and Kelly was averaging 28 in first-class cricket, was a very good gloveman. Sadly, uh, what happened with his career, obviously uh, uh, went down the match-fixing path eventually, but was a very good gloveman, had improved as a batter. But then you've got A.B. de Villiers, who we both know is going to average 45 or 50 with the gloves on, and it's going to give you seven frontline batting talents. And it's like, I'm not saying Mankai Antini's comments are wrong, because it's very possible that that came from it. But that's where the whole cricket side of things is so confusing, and how you understand that. And in the SJ in the hearings, I, I don't think that particular selection came up, or uh, I don't remember reading anything about no. it, but you had the Kaya Zondo and Dean Elgar situation where Kaya Zondo was told he was the backup batter, and then Dean Elgar, am I, am I right remembering Dean Elgar was not even in the in the, uh, in, in the, in the squad and ended up in the 11? Yeah, he wasn't, he in, wasn't the in the country. He was flying in for the test series, which would follow the one-day series for India 2015, after the 2015 World Cup, and... He flew two days earlier than the, the, the test squad to cover JP got injured, Miller was out of form, and Kaya Zondo was the next logical choice as the reserve better. And, you know, literally straight out of Mumbai Customs and the jet lag that comes with that, straight into the Wankete Stadium with uh, however many thousand people for a must-win game. The better option, the team felt, was Dean Elga over Kaya Zondo, who practiced Every single session had been told he's the next batsman in line. And that's as isolated as incidents. Uh, Atami Tolekile versus A.B. de Villiers. Any cricket person would probably pick an A.B. de Villiers. A Robin Peterson against a Johan Borta. You, you might pick a, you know, a Johan Borta. If you go Dinelga against Kaya Zondo, overall you might go Dinelga. But at the time... And this is the unfortunate thing. When it's every single opportunity where you can play a play of color and you look the other way, it becomes very difficult on the other side, which is already a minority, to accept that this is all just coincident. This is all just cricket. Mm. It's, it's, it's not a, a more sinister 
practice. They can't understand how South African rugby has got away without the scrutiny that cricket is currently under and has been under for over a year. But, you know, it helps massively that the rugby uh, side of things has three World Cups to show and that the last of those World Cups was with the most transformed team. And if you look at the behind the scenes documentaries, the starting point of that journey to the World Cup final, 18 months before that, uh, Rusty Rasmus came in and the first thing that he said of the cornerstones that he was using for the Springboks is that transformation is a weapon that is us. It's not something that we're going to see as a weakness. And straight away, that change of tone and that emphasis on transformation for the right way and not saying that I'm picking a black captain because he's black. I'm picking him because I feel he's the best leader in this squad. So go with me and I will take the flag for whatever. The minute you do that and you, and you give people the dignity to understand that I value what you bring to this table, I don't see you as a political pawn that I have to work with. I see you as a, as a, as a powerhouse that's going to make me and this team better. Straight away that changes. And, and, and to be frank, it buys you a lot of public leeway when your numbers are not as transformed as maybe it says on, on paper because your practices are transformed, your thinking is transformed. The opportunities that you provide are transformed. And unfortunately for cricket, whether they like it or not, whenever the opportunities have availed themselves, cricket has tended to look the other way, which is why there's so much animosity around the game. Well, when you talk about that, so you mentioned the Robin Peterson one, Sola Kelly and Zondo, right? So if you, if you look at those, if they're feeling like they're being treated correctly and that the coaches are on their sides and that they got their first opportunity, I mean... When I talk about South African cricketers and the quota, you know, being a quota selection, I always think of Mitchell Johnson. Mitchell Johnson didn't feel like he should have been part of the team for a big part of the early part of his career. He basically thought, I'm left arm and fast, and so they've picked me and I can whack a few balls, right? Now, if that's Mitchell Johnson, how does a young black African player coming through that setup who first time he gets picked probably doesn't bat or bowl, Second time, he, you know, he gets promoted again because he's maybe a really good fielder. Eventually, he ends up the international level. Most international players, until they're like really good, are doubting themselves to begin with. And then, as you said, if you've got that and any other bad treatment and hearing the bad terms that are used against you and all those sorts of things that came up in, in the hearing, like you know, uh, painting a player's face white, even if that's not you and you hear that story, that's still going to affect you, right? So even if you get to that point, by the time you're not selected, you're going to assume it's going to be about who you are rather than what you can do, even if that's not true. I think that's fair, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head. You've been conditioned for so long that it's just you. You know, this, this is a you problem. It's not an opportunity thing. It's a you. You know, everything tells you that you do not belong. Everything tells you, you know, messages fly around for dinner. And you're the only one who doesn't get one. And the next morning you hear that the rest of your team went to dinner song. That's not a coincidence. You know, surely somebody sits around and says, shucks, there's one guy missing. There's somebody not here. You can't not. You know, you don't go to a whole World Cup like Aaron Pangiso does. And the entire management and senior leadership team do not look around at one point to say, chief, we're on a great journey. We, we could win this tournament. But there's an opportunity to make sure that at least every single one of us has a World Cup appearance under their name. Let's play them against Holland. Let's play them against whoever. Surely at some point, somebody looks and says, you know, there's one part of our 15-man squad who's not at 100% emotionally because he just hasn't had the opportunity to do what we said he's going to do, which is play in a World Cup, proudest moment of his life. 
those blind spots and, and, and those missed opportunities, you stack them up and it's a culture. And that's what cricket is trying to deal with. And to go back to your initial point about the fact that cricket is complicated enough, when you, and I've said this to some senior figures in, in, in cricket South Africa, and then they didn't really have an answer for it. When you initially have people who love the game and are ready to serve the game, and you treat them the manner that you treat them, that makes them feel as if they're not wanted by the sport and they walk away. But the general conditions of the country say that at least at face value, you have to be transformed. So your senior leadership, your administrators, some of your selectors, some of your coaches and your players, there's a quota. But now your quota is being picked from people who didn't choose cricket as a first career, whether administratively or name-wise, but they're there because they literally are filling up numbers. These are the problems that you run into when you have these conversations, you try and have a cricket conversation with somebody who is not versed in the game because they came into this because there was an opportunity where the gap had to be filled by a person of color because you've chased away all the passionate players of color or people of color in the game because you made it so hard for them to advance. You've paid them 60% less than their white counterpart doing exactly the same job. So they've moved on to corporate or they've moved on to football or they've moved mm -hmm. on to rugby. And now you're trying to come to the negotiating table with somebody who doesn't care, but cares about transformation and cares about the optics. This is where cricket in South Africa is at a real crossroads because you've chased away most of the, the actual cricketing topsoil of color, for lack of a better term, has been eroded by just these experiences that are now coming to the fore in bits and pieces of this SJN hearings. So the sort of the backstory of all this is that Cricket South Africa is well, almost a board in name only, more often than not. They've got a logo and uh, occasionally they have a board and they almost got completely stripped by the government. How much of that do you think is related to each other? Because there's a lot of, I mean, you read through the lines of, you know, you wrote a really good article, Manthorpe, Fidos, all wrote really good articles. And there seemed to be a real feeling that a lot of the people who were holding on to their board positions, even though they clearly had run South African cricket as about as poorly as you could run it, were holding on to their positions because there was a financial stake in it for them, more so than they love cricket and were trying to build the game. Of course. And that's the opportunism that exists in the game. If you ask me to be a board director of Chelsea Football Club, and I know nothing about Chelsea, but you say that somebody like me who fits my criteria and the qualifications that I had, there is a seat waiting me. And I sit there and the empire is crumbling, but I'm still getting my £100,000 a year. Chances are, I don't care about this club. So whether it goes down or not, it's not something that affects me personally. But I see the opportunity that exists for someone like me to be there. So I'm going to be there until the ship sinks and then I'm going to move on to the next ship. But I don't care for it because I've never been raised around it. I've never cared for it. I've never played it at a level where I felt I could contribute, even if not necessarily on the field, but off the field because I love it so much. I've not been chased away. I've just come in and there's an opportunity that exists. It's, you know, I've hit the lotto. And a lot of them sit and are thick-skinned and, and, and look around and say, why should we? This is a problem that started long before us. We are mm. fulfilling our criteria. And that's a perfect storm. And as much as cricket can feel sorry for itself, it's created the storm itself just by the subtle othering that you spoke about and, and the lack of opportunities when opportunities have been there that have been taken to transform the game organically. So if, unfortunately, given our past, if you're not going to transform organically, you're going to be forced to transform. That's when government wades in. That's when the quotas come up. So then the whole language becomes so much more toxic because you now have to do it. Whereas rugby is saying we want to do it, cricket is like we're being forced to do it. 
they're playing on the same field, but they're looking at it completely differently. And that's why cricket has so many problems. And rugby, by coincidence, seems to be getting so much more right and has so much more national support. Everybody's jumping on their bandwagon. Cricket is, you know, is being beaten with a stick at every single opportunity because they haven't transformed their thinking and their approach to this. It's something that has to happen. You know, it, mm. it's something that has to happen given what happened in this country years ago, which ironically was on racial lines. So now you have to change it to show and reflect the demographics of the country that we're in. But if you chase the people who want to work with you, and I've said this before, you know, a lot of the anger that you see on Twitter from a South African cricket perspective, that's from people who don't really care for the game. They just see a headline that says, Makai Dini says he sat on the bus or he ran to the ground because he didn't want to sit with anyone on the bus because no one wants to sit with him. That's just a poor black child sitting in a bus and how dare they when he's playing for this country. That's people who don't know about the game. The people who are still sitting at the negotiation table, sitting at these hearings, are still people who care, who are still willing to unpack their stories to make sure that the next child, like an Ashwell Prince or Paul Adams or J.P. Duvenier, doesn't feel the way that they felt at certain stages of their career. And that's at the elite level. So you can imagine what's happening at a far lower level in country district mm. somewhere where, you know, those eyes are not there and people feel like they can get away with whatever language or whatever practice they feel like. Let's talk about some of the things that came out of the hearing. So there's the A.B. de Villiers story that he tried to push Rabada out of the team to, worth saying that he's come out and said that that is not correct. But again, that goes back to opportunities at a certain point. It'd be very possible for Rabada to go back, feel disheartened from that and not become the player he's become. Like there's a certain point at which he needs to play and players of his talent need to play. And so was that sort of the main headline that you think that came out of the, the sort of, forget the individual stories, which were worse, but that one was the one for me where I, I was just thinking, if they're even in a situation where Rabada might not have played, imagine what they would have missed out on. Imagine what has been missed out on over the years. Rabada was born to a doctor and a lawyer as parents. He went to one of the most prestigious schools in the country. He was articulate. He, he was confident. He knew his abilities. You've interviewed him, so you know that the kind of character that he is, he, he backs himself fully. He's, you know, he's one of the most confident cricketers in the world, which is one of the reasons why he's one of the best, because you know, he, he doesn't believe he's lost even when logic says he has. But if he didn't have that mindset and he didn't have that confidence instilled it from a early age, if he was a, a Ravada who was born in, in Makai and Dini-like circumstances, maybe we do not have a Fisu Ravada who might go on to break the national record for international dismissals by South Africa. Because somebody's been bashing away at his self-confidence and his motivation for ages to the point where he goes, actually, maybe I'm better off playing a different sport. You know, I played age group cricket against AB and Faf and... At under-19 level, there was a kid who was somewhere between Amfunekongam and Akakisu Ravada in terms of ability, in terms of pace, in terms of fear factor. He was 16 years old when everyone else was 19, and he was the fastest thing you've ever seen. And at that point, even A.B. de Villiers was scared of face. His name was Francois Nkuna. They called him Frankie, like big Franklin Stevenson. And this guy, he bowled out the wind. He hit me in the head, he concussed me, he broke someone else's arm. It was a mess. You figured that this guy, if he's managed properly, get to the top and he'll be playing South Africa in the next few years. He was so poorly managed because all he knew was that he, he, he was a fast bowler and he was scary. So if he finished under 19 practice, he'd go to B team practice. He'd finish B team practice, he'd go play seniors. 
So instead of bowling 30 balls a day, as is prescribed now for all your fast bowlers to protect them and make sure that their best balls in the match instead of nets, he broke down on the stress fracture within two, three years. Never heard of him since. He's, I think he's coaching softball at the moment. But, you know, these are the gems that you sometimes overlook when you see them as, as workhorses or donkeys or net bowlers instead of assets that must be protected, paid accordingly, provided the nutrition. So you've lost some mm-hmm. Funekong Gum, which we knew about, but you've also lost the Franz and Kuna and goodness knows how many others along the way because it's such a specialized sport. It's such a demanding sport. And the, the art of fast bowling, anyone will tell you, from Fred Truman to whoever, Michael Holding, if you're not blessed with genetics that allow you to just flow to the crease, if you're a plodder, like a Lungingiti who breaks down a lot because of his science and his action, you're going to break down unless you have the right nutrition and you have the right people looking after your body. But, you know, if, if you've been raised to eat whatever's available and you then have to walk a couple of miles to get to a taxi and then run from the taxi rank to get to the stadium before everybody else to get to practice on time, there's no chance that you're giving your body the best chance to succeed and then get to an international level. And these are the miss diamonds that South Africa will have dotted around across the country, batting and bowling, just because you just don't look there. You know, you look at the traditional schools and you say, oh, this kid can play. He goes to good school, he can play. He's being coached by so-and-so who plays here and there. He can play. The net is not cast much wider than that until recently. And even then, it's a box-ticking exercise. And the approach to transformation has been, oh, we have to be seen to be going out to these communities. So therefore, let's go out and... Let's throw a few balls a couple of hours a week. Let's spend the money so it seems we're spending 300 million rand transformation. But you're not unearthing. You're not because the talent is there. I can tell you for free. The talent is there and it's always been there. But if you don't care for it in the same manner that you care for it for perceived diamonds that come from elite schools, we're going to keep on encountering this problem in South Africa for a long time because you're just not looking. You're not looking in the same way. It's sad to see, but you know, this is where South African cricket is and, and will continue to be because it's such a volatile market. And unfortunately, like I said, the first uh, option for most people is to defend themselves rather than to try and find a better way to make this game better for all. There's quite a few very sad stories that came out of this. So Ashwell Prince talks about what it's like to be a quota player. Also, the way that the, his teammates talked about Indians the fact that he never felt like it was a team. He talks about making 100 and, and kind of putting his bat up towards the team because he had to, not because he wanted to. Lutz Bosman was abused. Paul Adams was abused as well. We're not talking average cricketers. Like, these are not no. these, these are not what I would call even replacement-level cricketers. Like, Paul Adams has still, to this day, has a remarkable record. Last time I saw him, I was still saying, you should come back and play T20 cricket. I think you take a lot of wickets, right? Ashwell Prince was one of those guys who was probably not that much worse than Faf Duplessis. Like, he was on that kind of level. He wasn't, like, on an AB or, or, or a Callis level, but he was on that other level of, like, a really solid international player. Even Lutz Bosman was, you know, a brilliant hitter of the ball, and they had to deal with that. It must just be chipping away at them until they get to that top level, and then it never stops. That's the thing for me. It never stops. There's no time where everyone goes, now you're here and we feel like you're part of it. They were still treated like quota players all the way through, even when they were being successful. Hashim Amla, you know, one of the greats of the <laughs> modern era. It doesn't stop, unfortunately. It's the easiest weapon of choice. And it's, it, the worst thing is it's by South Africans to fellow South Africans. You know, if this was abuse hurled from Australia or India about South Africa, maybe you start understanding it. But these are 
South African supposed supporters of the South African team, just labeling people who wear the jersey that's supposed to represent your country, and just labeling you as just not good enough. You play one bad innings, you drop one catch, you know, and, and the level of tolerance, and this is where the hurt comes in, because the level of tolerance for a poor black performance is very different to that of a, a poor white performance. It's a competitive environment, but you know, a lot of these guys have only asked to be treated fairly. If you're going to say that I'm not good enough, mm. as National Prince has often said, stack up my numbers and show me people who were better than me at that time. Take my record now against the people that you're saying are so much better than me, the people who are throwing abuse at me. And do you talk about actual Prince, Makai Antini, Lut Bosman? In terms of mental strength, these are some of the most mentally strong cricketers that South Africa produced because of the circumstances they came from when they were young, just learning the game the hard way. And they've gone on and maybe they didn't achieve everything they wanted to on the field. But trust me, a lot of those guys are, are fine off the field because of, of how hard they were drilled on the field. They've developed such a mental hardness. Lewis Postman is a successful businessman. You know, Ashwell Prince is going to be a successful franchise coach. So unfortunately, it leaves a taste of bitterness to them. And you can tell by the stories that they share that mm. they should be so much more. These should be mentors who are revered and, and, and are going out to communities and encouraging people to get into the game. At the moment, you hear their stories and you think, why on earth would I want to be a professional cricketer? That's the environment that exists. And when legends in my eyes are looking at it and saying, this hasn't changed much. This is what I dealt with. And this is what's still happening now. Why on earth would I want to wade into that and suffer myself when there are softer options out there? Being a South African is hard enough. Why must I now go and suffer in a place where I'm supposed to enjoy my life? And I'm just going to be abused and othered and left out and, and, and made to feel inferior. Why would I? You know, so that's the unfortunate thing about this year. It doesn't change. In fact, it's become almost worse because the quota system has obviously reiterated those boundaries for some. And you can take it as a strength or you can take it as a weakness. You know, if you take it as that's the ceiling, we can only have three players of color and that's it. And you have five or six quality players and now you're picking between them. That's a problem in itself. You know, it's, it's saying minimum. And a lot of people have taken the minimum and changed it to maximum. Absolutely, that's it. We only take three. If there happen to be more, they're tough luck because we've got to make sure that we look after ourselves. That's a terrible way to think. You don't build a team that way. You don't build a country that way. You know, but this is where we still are from a cricketing perspective. The other thing that came out of it is Roger Telemarcus's talk about the big five. I think one of the other players might have mentioned it as well, like this cabal of players. I would assume if we're talking about a big five, Graham Smith is involved in that big five and he's currently the most important person in cricket South Africa. Mark Boucher is probably involved in that big five because he's got something to do with Graham Smith and Graham Smith gave him the job. We know that Mark Boucher had some kind of uh, incident with Mark Butcher earlier in his career on the field when it comes to racism. You know, I'm not, not saying that, that, that he's carried that through all the way through, but it does feel like the good old boys are still in charge. And while the good old boys are still in charge, I'm not doubting the knowledge of cricket that Graham Smith and Mark Boucher have, but I am doubting that they are the best people in the world to change an entire cricket culture because they built this cricket culture. The cricket culture that currently exists in South Africa is what they built. Cricket in South Africa was basically built on Graham Smith's shoulders at a certain point there. It just feels to me that they can't be involved going forward. Is that how you felt watching the, the, the hearings? Look, I think the hearings are based on the fact that they are hearings and there are two sides to every story. It would be extremely revealing 
to see what, not just Graham Smith or Mark Boucher, but anybody who was accused of, of treating people a certain way, what they have to say in hindsight, because like we said before, if you were not aware of it at the time, and it's now been put in front of you that this is what you did, the line that you adopted that stage says more about you than the person who's brought the accusation forward. There's an opportunity and it's been opened. From what I understand, Mark Boucher is going to respond. So that will be revealing. But I think the lack of response, if there was a lack of response um, at all by anybody who's been, you know, and I think Graham Smith has responded before at the height of the Black Lives Matter when Tommy Tsunakina came out with quite a few um, Graham Smith specific incidents and he responded to quite a few of them in quite a wordy uh, statement. And I think at the end of that, he said, if people feel that I'm not the person who should be going forward with Cricket South Africa, I'm happy to step down. I think obviously, given his position as director and the amount of international relations that South Africa are trying to patch up, he is a crucial cog in that sense. You know, you need your international friends more than ever because the finances have run dry, a lot of the sponsors run away. And those kind of people need their faith restored by somebody that is familiar, that they trust, that they think is still part of this, you know. I think if he walked away, and I think maybe even still now, if he walked away, it'd be more damaging to the wider cricketing culture and the health of South African cricket because of what it would mean. You know, the, the uncertainty, we'd, we'd be back where we were in middle of 2020, where people are going, well, what happens next? Why on earth mm. we sign long-term broadcast deals or sponsorship deals? So he is a figurehead, a complicated one because he comes with the baggage that he had as a player and as a captain. But the response to these accusations for me is crucial. And I, I don't think there's been a general tone of off with their heads and, you know, get them out to South African cricket. People want to understand where their mindset was. If your mindset was there 20 years ago as a player, but you've now had time to reflect and you understand where the game is now and where South Africa as a country is now and your responsibilities as a leader in that change, I think people are willing. And I think even Tommy Tolagile said, Graham is the right person to be director of cricket, but he needs to understand the hurt that he's caused. And I think a lot of the people who have accused have not said, this guy doesn't deserve to be there, they're there. But you must accept and not necessarily explain because it's, it's not a criminal hearing, but you must accept and then maybe provide the context necessary to show that, hey, you've moved from where you were there when you were harming people with your language and the manner that you treated them to where you are now, where you are dealing with players again and their ambitions. You know, you're a central part of, of so much of South African cricket. So I think it's good to, to sort of give the opportunity for the other side to come out and give their side because, you know, unfortunately, you know, just like cricket is a game of two innings, these hearings, there's another innings to come where people will have to come and bet for themselves and and perhaps bet for their, their reputations in terms of South African legacy. So that'll be interesting when, when that restarts again later this week. The Social Justice Nation Building SJN hearings, silly name hearings, you would have sat through a lot of them. You went through the system yourself. You're now a journalist. How did you feel personally going through all this? I found it remarkable that so many of the things that I went through, so many others like me went through them at different levels which reiterates the notion that this was a culture, it, it wasn't a coincidence. When you hear that you're doing the same job as somebody and you're not paid the same, even though you're equally qualified, apparently, or you train as hard and you do everything that's asked of you as a player, but when it gets to actually being on the field and expressing yourself, you don't get the same opportunities. 
those things eat away and eat away and eat away. And you know, by extension, in South African media, we are dealing with very similar to what has been unraveled in these SJN hearings in terms of othering and in terms of language used and in terms of respect. You know, we've tried to put together a media writer's club and I was supposed to be one of the spearheads. I left at, at some point because of the language that was being used and I challenged a couple of people and there was a strong reaction. And I just said, look, I'm not going to be part of something that is very clearly not transformed. You know, the irony of us calling people out to be transformed or asking people taking a knee when we ourselves in the language that we use amongst each other and, you know, the, the dismissive uh, tone that, that, that so many that you respect use towards others just because they feel like I've been around this game a lot longer than you, so my opinion weighs far more than, than yours does. You can't speak about this person because I know this person personally. You know, that's just uh, another change room situation just happening in a, in a press box instead of a change room. It's dismissive. It's, it's, it's othering. It's, it's, uh, it's a sense of entitlement and, and ownership of a space because the faces that you've grown up around in that space look like you, talk like you, act like you. So then when different faces come, you feel threatened and your first point of attack is to dismiss. And, you know, that's happening in our media. So to hear that it's happened in administrative places and knowing that it's happening in, in so many playing circles, it's sad, you know, because as, as much as we can crow about uh, United Rainbow Nation, it's not really united. And I, I guess when you get to those dark places in a cricket field or late in tournaments, South African will sometimes dies away because maybe actually you're not as united as you think. You'd pull for somebody that you know you attach to. You'd pull to the bitter end, you know, if you find other levels of inspiration and dig even deeper and find a way to win. But, you know, when there's that lingering resentment or even the lack of trust in somebody, I think at crash moments it shows, you know, that there's a lack of faith in somebody or you're not as united as you should be. Those cracks do appear and, and probably maybe that's why South Africa have never got over the line in, in, in tournament cricket because you have to be on the same sheet. You have to be on the same page with somebody when it really, 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 really counts. And unfortunately, I don't think South African cricket is, is there and there's still a long way to go, actually. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Mr. Kimber, it's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. Red Crickets.